following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be at this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, New Testament. Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be at this morning. Romans chapter 9. We'll look at the last half of the chapter, uh, verse 25 through 33. Romans chapter 9, verse 25 through 33. Billy Graham said, man has two great spiritual needs. Two. One is for forgiveness, and the other one is for goodness. It's interesting these past couple of weeks to see firsthand the goodness of God. Somebody came up to me uh, just a little bit ago, and they said, Jordan, uh, two weeks ago, you spoke at camp uh, for junior high students, and then last week you were at sports camp. You're going to be okay speaking to adults on Sunday morning? <laughs> I said, I, I don't know, maybe. I said, I said, why do you ask? He said, what's the difference between speaking to adults and speaking to kids? I said, kids will take everything you say as gospel. I mean, they will listen to you and they will just soak it all in and they nod their heads and they're like, yep, I agree, absolutely, 100%. I mean, you could tell them that boogers are the best food on the planet Earth and they would believe you and they would participate in it and I mean, they are just all about it, which I've never done before, so don't hold that against me, okay? Adults, on the other hand, adults look at you and they say, well, you sure about that? Who gave you that information? Where'd you get that from? Are you having a good day or a bad day? Now, if we were to contemplate this for a little bit, what does that really look like? I mean, they go like to the nth degree. Somebody tell you some solid truth and an adult would just take it and they would just like, boom. I mean, it would just, sometimes we just overthink it. I remember the first day I bought a Macintosh computer. And I had no idea. I had a PC for a long, long, long time. Bought a Macintosh computer. Somebody looked at me and they said, now this is going to be really, really kind of hard for you, but in order to run a Macintosh computer, you have to just think like an idiot. (laughs) I'm like, what? I mean, the guy who sold it to me says, you just got to think like an idiot. I mean, I'm I'm not kidding. And so open up my computer and I I start and I have no idea how this thing works. And he's like, and it popped up in my head, just think like an idiot. (laughs) So sure enough, I'm like, well, how would I do this? Well, I would do it like this. And sure enough, it worked. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, Every time I just thought the simplest thing and executed it, it would happen. And when I jumped back to the PC world, I mean, it was so complex and complicated and it seemed like we were just crossing wires. Now, if you're a PC person, I will not hold that against you, I promise, okay? And if you're an Apple person, there's a cult room in our church for you and you can come and participate whenever you want. I'm just kidding. The reason I tell you that is because sometimes the word of God is so simple that we look at it and we think, no, there is no way. It has to be more complicated than that. It has to be more complex than that. I mean, sometimes like God will like deliver a truth to us and we will look at it and we'll say, no way. There's, there's no way that it's that easy. And when it comes to the goodness of God, it truly is that easy. The last question 
from last week, I told you there was four questions that we ask about God. And the last question today is, is God always good? Is God always good? And the Bible very, very clearly, I mean, I could just say this word and we could pack up our Bibles and, and go home if you would just acknowledge it and it doesn't need any explanation. But the answer to the question is what? Yeah, he really, truly is. He is always good. And we talked about the sovereignty of God. And when we look at the sovereignty of God, we're talking about God's power to rule or his authority over all things. And the question that the Jews of the day are asking is, is God really a good God? Knowing all the things that we know about him, all the Old Testament passages where he like does some really, in our minds, horrendous things. Is he really, really a good God? They watch the Gentiles come into this relationship with Jesus Christ. They're infiltrating the, the synagogues and Christianity's changing. And they say, is God really, really a good God? And the answer, church, is, yeah, he really, truly is. God's sovereignty is always good. God's authority, his power, his rule is always good. If we could wake up in the morning and tell ourselves this, life would be so much simpler. If we could look at ourselves in the bathroom mirror and say, God, are you always good? And nod our heads, yeah, he is always good. I mean, but sometimes we would spit back, wouldn't we? We would say, well, hold on a second. I'm having problems and I'm in crisis and my life's falling apart and everything just seems to kind of be disintegrating around me. Yes, God is always good. Yes, God is always good. Paul wants the Jews to know this. He wants you this morning, church, to know this. This one simple truth this morning, that God is always good. If you walk out of here with anything, it is that God is always good. And I'm going to take just a few moments to explain how God is always good. First thing, Romans chapter 9, verse 25 and 26. Look what he says. Again, he's giving kind of an explanation here using some Old Testament truth to help the Jews of the New Testament see that the Gentiles really aren't that bad and they're coming to believe in faith. So verse 24, we'll start just right before verse 25. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, there's the family, as indeed he says in Hosea. So he's going to use an Old Testament passage to illustrate a New Testament truth. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. 26, and in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now, that might be confusing for you. You might be looking at that. You're like saying, whoa, hold on a second. That doesn't make any sense. Well, he's talking about a passage of scripture in Hosea. We'll get there in just a second. But he's talking about a story that we need to see and we need to hear to actually understand how good God is. So we're going to go to the Old Testament, to the book of Hosea. Now, because I've been talking to children for so long, I wanted to tell you there's a secret in the Bible called the Table of Contents, which gives you all the books of the Bible. And most of us have no idea where Hosea is. So feel free to cheat this morning. Okay? 
Hosea is in the Old Testament. And we look in the Old Testament, we realize that there's all of this law that was given. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then all of a sudden we have the history of the Jewish nation for us, which goes all the way to the wisdom books. And then you get into some major and minor prophets. Hosea would be classified as a minor prophet. Okay? So we get, to, we get to Hosea and we want to understand what exactly Paul is talking about to the Jewish audience in regards to this story. We need to understand it. Well, look at the first chapter, verse three, it picks up and we can start at verse one. It says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. He was the son of Barry in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And then the Lord spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, now, if God tells you this today, no, okay? God doesn't, God doesn't, God is speaking to Hosea. This is kind of a one-time thing, okay? Because it's going to seem a little bit weird. He says, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, a prostitute. He says, go and take this woman and have children with her. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So after probably scratching his head a little bit, uh, Hosea says, okay. And so he went and he takes Gomer. And she conceived and she bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, you shall call his name Jezreel for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu, the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again. There's two children. She bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. Man, these are like really, really good names. Not even close. He says, I'll have no more He says, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them from the, uh, by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by the bow or the sword or by the war or by horses or by horsemen. And then she weaned no mercy and she conceived another uh, child and she bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people for you're not my people and I'm not your God. Ouch. (laughs) Okay. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go for the land for great shall the day of be of Jezreel. Now you're like, I don't understand pretty much anything that happens in that passage of scripture. The only thing that you need to take out this morning is that God looks at Hosea and he says, marry a prostitute as a symbolic representation of your relationship with me. God commands him to take Gomer as a wife, regardless of the fact that she would be unfaithful. This is speaking heavily to the Jews because they were unfaithful to God. It should speak heavily to us as a church because I understand that many of us, myself included, go out after church is over and we live our life the way that we want to live our life. And then all of a sudden there are pockets maybe in our day where we look at God and we say, okay, these are the times which I've made places for you. And so if you could just form and fit in my box, everything will be okay. 
And it's a symbolic representation that God doesn't want necessarily just pieces of us. He wants a whole relationship with us. He wants 110% of us. And so he looks at us and he says, I don't want just you to be this person who's just kind of participating in a relationship with me whenever you feel like it. I need you to be on point with me 100% of the time. Three kids are born, indicating God's attitude towards Israel's rejection. And we see that he hates it. I mean, he calls Hosea and Gomer's kids horrible, horrendous names. Can you imagine growing up and you go to kindergarten, first grade, and they're like, what is your name? My name is No Mercy. Not, not good. You're going to be in counseling freshman, sophomore year of high school. No problem. Okay? This is a bad deal. But God is showing that he is bitter and he is brokenhearted when unfaithfulness happens. Why? Because God says to have a relationship with me, you must believe in faith that I am a good God. A good God is going to protect and he's going to support regardless of the unfaithfulness. If we were to look at the story of Hosea and Gomer... Gomer runs away from Hosea constantly and he constantly comes and he picks her up sometimes in her nakedness after her deliberate acts of prostitution and brings her home through the town that she lives in. And everybody's pointing and laughing hysterically that he would do something like this. And he says, it's okay. Don't listen to them because I love you. That's what God does for us. Like, I mean, we are so far off. And he says, in your nakedness and your shame and all of your wrongful living, I'm going to pick you up like we learned last week. I'm going to cradle you like a good shepherd. And I'm going to take you home and forget what all these other people say. Listen to what I say. Because I'm a good God. I constantly will come to rescue you. I will constantly come to your aid. Even though I don't deserve it. It's almost like, I was, I was reading this the other day. It's almost like a soldier who goes overseas and fights for our country. And he comes back and he logs on his computer and he sees all the Facebook feed of all the junk that's going on in our world. And the soldier probably thinks to himself, why in the world would I fight for this country? I mean, this seems like a wasted effort. This seems like this shouldn't happen. I mean, he's got to be just devastated. He spends all his time away from his family, fighting for his country, sees all the mess that's going on in the world. And he says, no, that's, that's, that's the way it should be because people get a choice. And God sets it up that way. He says, you get a choice. You get a choice on whether or not you're going to enter into a relationship with me or not. Now, The kicker is, God says, I want you to see that I'm a good God when you rejected me and how good of a God I am when you accepted me. See, Israel's rejection was no surprise to God. He wasn't surprised about it, just like he wasn't surprised about the Gentiles openly and actively receiving him. He isn't surprised with inconsistency. He isn't surprised with unfaithfulness. God doesn't love you because of what you do. God loves you in spite of what you do. And so we see in this story of Hosea and Gomer 
as well as what Paul is communicating to the Jewish audience, is that God doesn't love you because of what you are. He loves you in spite of what you are. And when we come to the realization of this understanding of how much he loves us, of how much he cares for us, we have a choice of whether or not we're going to respond to him or we're going to continue to run away from him. (laughs) At sports camp, we were talking about Moses. And we talked a little bit about this last week with the Pharaoh hardening his heart. And after a couple of long conversations with people about how does Pharaoh harden his heart? Why would God allow Pharaoh to harden his heart? The understanding that I keep reaching is this is a twofold effort. In other words, God looks at it and he says, I don't think Pharaoh's here. I don't think he's present. I don't think he is listening to what I'm saying. And so God hardens his heart a little bit. But Pharaoh makes a choice on his own accord, to harden his heart even further until he has continually cemented his stance on where he is in his relationship with the living God. Now, let's get real personal, okay? If the marriage ceremony in the United States of America still has any integrity left in it, when a man and a woman get married, they are symbolizing their commitment to one another, which stems off a Christian principle. And that is a symbolic representation of God the Father with his people. We are choosing him and he is choosing us. So we wear rings that symbolize that. And we understand as human beings, when a man takes a woman, there's going to be times in that relationship when it's hard. But the times in which it is hard, the love comes out the more those people seek each other's best. And there could have been times of unfaithfulness. There could have been times of distraction, there could be idols within the house, it doesn't matter. But what happens is, is what Paul's saying here to the Jewish people is, God is running after you, are you running after him? And if we want to get like really like an application for this, like in your marriage, like are you running towards your spouse or are you running away from your spouse? Because that is a good representation of what the Christian life is like. My marriage is very parallel with my relationship with God. Usually if I'm seeking my wife's best and I'm running after her and I'm pursuing her, I'm running after my relationship with my Savior because I understand they're together, they are one. If I'm running away from my Savior and I'm doing whatever I want to do, then usually my wife's second, third, fourth down the list. God continues to run after his people. He says here in the word, he says, those that were not my people will someday become my people. God isn't lost. We are. Hosea's not lost. Gomer is. And so he runs after her. He runs after her because God always calls people back to himself. He always calls people back into a relationship with him. It never fails. Why is God a good God? Because God constantly calls people back to himself. You were lost, now you're found. You have a choice. We have a choice on whether or not we're going to believe 
God is a good God. But Paul doesn't quit, okay? So go back to Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, chapter 9. And he says, and he continues in the passage of Scripture, he says in verse 27. So we see this example from Hosea, and then all of a sudden he pulls from Isaiah. He says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. In other words, only a small percentage of the Jewish population are going to commit to the choice to run after the Lord in a relationship with faith. Because they will follow their own legalistic patterns. They will do their own legalistic things. Now, that's a parallel in the sermon all within itself because there's many people who will call themselves Christians that will not be saved because they ran after a legalistic relationship, a pattern of works to get them to heaven instead of living by faith through Jesus Christ. So for the Lord, verse 28, will carry out his sentence upon the earthly and fully and without delay. Verse 29, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us as offspring, we would have been like Sodom or we would have been like Gomorrah. So essentially what Paul's saying, if we could culminate like that whole passage of scripture, is that God is good because he is consistent God is consistent in calling people back into himself. He doesn't stop this. He pursues us constantly. Like if we were to go back even to yesterday and we could go from the very top of our day all the way to the bottom of our day, we would see that God is constantly pulling us back to himself. When you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's something inside of you when you go away from the things of God that pulls on your heart. It's like, hey, this is not good. It's like a red flag in your soul. That's called the Holy Spirit working on your heart. And so God is consistently, constantly calling people back to himself. Paul quotes Isaiah, crying out with great emotion. It's almost like a scream or a despair for his lost brothers. Now, this is the same great emotion that Paul had in the book of Romans. And it's the same great emotion that Jesus had when he wanted his disciples to pray. Like it's it's this screaming out to come for me. Like God's like almost like, hey, We can have a good relationship if you would just turn from yourself and come back to me. And that's how it is like with relationships, church. Like there's lots of times where if we would just like dump all the junk and our own selfish motives in this process and we would just turn to each other and we would just say, hey, I want to seek your best and I want to do what God wants us to do. I want to be like Christ. I want to consistently be pursuing this because this is good. That's exactly what Paul is saying. So God's goodness constantly comes and a good God constantly and consistently yearns for his people to come to him. It's like almost if God, like when you wake up in the morning, God's like, hey, just read the book. You know what I mean? It's almost like he's just, just read the book. Now, the funny thing is, if this was like, like let's say your spouse died, okay? I, I hate to like bring this up and maybe some of you are like, no, I'm glad, keep, keep going. Um, if your spouse were to die and you guys were like crazy in love, like we're talking notebook style love here, okay? 
and you pull out the drawer and your sweetheart had written you like seven or eight really like mushy, gushy love letters. I mean, and they were just like, I love you. I care for you. You are the coolest things and sliced bread and all this other stuff. And I mean, they just poured out to you and like, it would just make you cry. And you know, classical music would play in the background. You're, you're tracking with me, right? Okay. So if that were to happen, you wouldn't take those love letters and like fold them up and put them back in a drawer. No way. There's no way. You would open those and you would read them and you would cherish them because your spouse has left you something of promise. And it encourages you and it builds you up. And it's it's, it's just a beautiful thing. Well, our Savior died, okay, and wrote us a book. And every day he yearns for us to open it, to read it, to study it, to understand it. He says, I, I want you to be involved in this relationship. Because why? Because I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. Well, how do we know this? Okay, <clears throat> go over to uh, the book of Luke, to the left, okay? There's a great parable that illustrates exactly, I know you're turning a lot of places in your Bible this morning, and that's okay. Uh, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives a parable, and it is exactly on par with what we're talking about. There's a parable in Luke chapter 15, it starts in verse 11, of the prodigal son. I know many of you know this. I know many of you understand this, but track with me here for just a second. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me a share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. I would have done it. Just saying. So, and he had spent everything. A severe famine arose in the country. He began to be in need. So he went, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. When he was lodging to feed with the, pig, with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. So he's in complete disarray. But, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'm going to arise, go to my father and say to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, he felt compassion on him, he ran and embraced him, he kissed him, and the son said to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, his shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead and alive again. He was lost and now he is found and they began to celebrate <laughs> what? Okay, so watch this. This passage is so parallel to the passage we're studying because the Jews are the other brother who's sitting there and looking at this father running to his son who did the exact opposite of what he was supposed to do. And the Gentiles are like ecstatic because there's a party being thrown for them. And church, this is so parallel with what's happening in our churches in America today. Like we have some really quote unquote religious people that aren't happy when somebody gets saved. It's just, it's just the way it is. I mean, I think sometimes we're like, yeah, cool. They got saved, but don't bring them in here. I mean, that's like the stat. Like, I think sometimes we are too bent on our own religious like status that we forget about the guy at the gas station. 
And this is exactly parallel because Isaiah was given an understanding on the judgment that would come to the people who rejected God. And there was a compassion for them. There was a compassion for the lost. And Isaiah, Hosea, Jesus are consistently running to these people because they understand that God's a good God. Isaiah knew that only a small part of his heritage would be saved by the Lord. Paul uses the annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah to show how the Lord is going to destroy corruption once again. And God's goodness is consistent with what we talked about last week, his stance on justice. He's he's a good God. Even though some people are going to reject him and they're going to choose to live in eternity without him, I mean, he's still a good God. He still is consistently running after his people. And we must, church, do the same, okay, with everything. Like, I don't know if your marriage is awful right now and it stinks, but you must run after your spouse, Jordan, you don't know what they did. I, I, I can only imagine. And let me tell you something. I'm sorry you're dealing with it. Run after them. Your kids, maybe they are like completely far gone. Like maybe they're just, they're just lost and you're looking at them going, how did I want to be in your mom and dad? Because we didn't teach you that. I mean, my mom told me that like 17 times when I was junior high. You didn't learn that from me. No, I learned it from television. You let me watch television. But we look at that and it's, it's like, but I, what I see is the consistently running after that relationship. But so often in our culture, we say, well, they didn't call me and, and they didn't text me and they didn't Facebook message me and you didn't Facebook message them and you didn't text them and you didn't call them. So it goes both ways. If we're going to believe in the goodness of God, we have to be consistent and run after lost people like God would. And that's not always easy. That's not always easy. But when we commit to salvation and understanding of what it means to know Jesus Christ, we accept God's consistent offering of grace and his wisdom and his relationship. Last thing, Paul closes and he concludes in Romans uh, chapter nine. He says this. And this is kind of the, the culmination of Romans chapter nine. And he's, he's really setting you up for verse for chapter 10. So if it was my choice, I'd just keep preaching and, and go to uh, Romans chapter 10 because it really fits. And we're going to do that. So next week, if you want to read Romans chapter 10, we'll be in there. But look at verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? So knowing all of these things, what do we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. <laughs> Paul says, listen, Mr. Jew, they accepted it. Listen, Mr. Christian, this guy accepted it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But it, if it were based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So it is written again in Isaiah, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the last thing that we see is that a good God gives us a choice. Like, is God really good? If the goodness of God boils down to one thing, it is that he gave you a choice. Now, one-time commitment in salvation, which is the acceptance, chapter 10, okay? The next choice is to consistently buy into his goodness day after day after day 
after day. Like no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the situation is, that God is good. The Jews try to write off God's goodness by stating that men having to make a choice of salvation conflicts with God's plan. If God's sovereign and he knows, then why do we have to choose? But God demands faith or a choice from his people. Why? I don't know. I'm not God. You can ask him. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why God would give us his choice, but he did. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat from this tree. Why? Like, there's, like, can you imagine? No, you can't even imagine. All this goodness that is there, that is God's. And God's like, not this one tree. And, and let's just be honest. I mean, if we're there, we're eating from that tree. Like, that's just what we do. But it gives us a choice. And salvation becomes effective only when it is willingly received by faith. So some of us, we're like saying some of these prayers and we're like ushering some of these prayers and God's like, do you realize, and I say this very lightly, but do you realize God looks at you sometimes he's like, you can answer like three-fourths of the prayer request that you just prayed? Like, God, would you help me love my spouse? Get off the couch, close the computer, go tell her she looks good. <laughs> like, I mean, God answers, God's like, I've given you a choice. So believe it. Believe that I'm good. There's a responsibility on behalf of the believer. The requirement for righteousness is, and always has been, through faith. And we have to believe that when we go and do our part, God's with us. His goodness is with us. So you know what? It takes a lot to shut the computer. It takes a lot to go over to your wife. It takes a lot to, you know, like say, hey, you look great. And if God is sovereign over our hearts, our spouse goes, thanks. <laughs> okay, so we have a responsibility. We have a choice. The greatest obstacle in gaining salvation is self-righteousness. The culmination of verse nine, the person who thinks he is already righteous, already has it all together, already pleases the Lord, has no room for grace in salvation through faith. The biggest difference between speaking to young people and adults is that point right there. A young person accepts it because they understand what it means to have a relationship or not a relationship with a father. Like they get it. An adult looks at it and they really wrestle with that because oftentimes we're self-righteous and self-righteousness always fails because it is pursued by works and not through faith. And while works may seem fitting, like, I mean, there's some times, I'll just be honest with you, church, I'm like, if I clean this whole house, Bethany is just gonna fall down and worship me because I'm awesome. And sometimes, like, she walks in, she goes, hey, you cleaned the whole house? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, cool, we gotta go. That's it? I mean, and sometimes, like, I mean, like, I'll do things for my kids. Like, I'll build them things and structures for their toys and whatever. And I'm like, look at what I have created. And it's destroyed within, like, five minutes. <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm just like, what? I built this for you. But it's not about me. It's about the stance of the heart. And that's my question for you this morning. Where is the stance of the heart. The Jews had a stance of the heart that was hardened to understand the grace of God because they refused to live in faith. They wanted to continue to live in works. The Gentiles, on the other hand, understood they were so far off that there's nothing that they could do to get to God. God came to them and thus offered them a relationship in faith. And they 
ran to it. I mean, they were like, this is awesome. Man has two great spiritual needs. One is forgiveness and two is goodness. Will you please, I beg of you, this week embrace the goodness of God? And my whole prayer would be that you see it in every single part of your life. Let me pray for you. Father God, we're coming up on 10, 11, and 12 in Romans. And man, those are just awesome chapters because we start to really unpack what it means to have a relationship with you. And um, God, I pray first and foremost that you forgive us because sometimes we forget that you're such a good God. I mean, 18 kids made declarations of faith this past week because they understand you're good. They want to play on your team. And then the week before, there's junior high and high school kids who are making declarations of faith because you are good. And God, we all came to this relationship with you because we believe that you're a good God and you're seeking our best. But so many of us are like Gomer or we're like the nation of Israel where we just do our own thing. And we think that ourselves are, are greater than you, our Savior. And, and God, would you just forgive us of that? And when we wake up tomorrow or we go home today and maybe when we jump in our cars and we look out the rearview mirror and we catch kind of that glimpse of ourself, that you would help us just to refocus, say thank you, that you're a good God. Maybe when we forget our keys in our house that you gave us and we're all frustrated and mad and upset as we run through that door, would you help us to maybe say a little prayer of praise that you gave us a vehicle and you gave us a house? And God, when somebody disappoints us, somebody does something that just scars us, would you do your part, what you said you would do, and heal that wound? Help us to love people like you love us. And God, we know that's so incredibly difficult. But we believe you're a good God. And you can do great things through your people when they're dependent upon your goodness. And so God, help us just from last week to this week not think of you in any other light except for the fact that you are awesome and powerful and moving and working all things together for the good of those who trust in you. And may we embrace that mercy and grace as we try as hard as we can to serve you faithfully because of the relationship we've received with your son. It's only by his blood and his grace that we are able to do any works that are even remotely close to being called righteous. We thank you being such an awesome, awesome, awesome creator. And we are knitted together in your image. And it is only through your power and love that we have the opportunity to be in a relationship with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, Simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com 
and click the Contribute tab.